when, when each of my kids turned 15, you know what that meant, that they got a learner's permit. And so, and before they could get their driver's license when they turned 16, then they had to log in so many hours of driving in order to qualify. And so during that year after they turned 15, you know, they were doing a lot of driving, but it was with Trish or myself sitting beside them. And of course, they were eager to learn, and we were eager to teach them that they would learn the basics of being on the road and all the safety things and just all the things that go into that. And I knew that they would be good drivers. I knew that they would be good drivers because they were great at playing Mario Kart. And I was terrible at it. I could never stay on the road, so I knew they would be way better than I ever would be. Well, this is uh, week seven in our eight-week series called The Absolute Basics of the Christian Faith. And one of the purposes of this series is not just for you to learn, but for you to learn how to share this with others. How, how are you going to take the things that you learn here and you have some simple ways that you can teach them to your kids, to your grandkids, the ways that you can kind of have ready at hand that you can talk about in conversations with your neighbors or a friend or a coworker. Um, today we asked the question, what are the church's sacraments? Well, maybe you know the basics answer to that and we'll get into that in a little bit. But here's the main thing I want to focus on today. Sometimes we use common things to convey uncommon meaning. Sometimes we use common things to convey uncommon meaning. For example, it was four weeks ago yesterday was the 100th anniversary of the lynching of Will Brown in Omaha. I don't know if you saw any of the news about it at the time. Uh, his gravestone there says, Will, William Brown, Lynched in Omaha riot, September 28th, 1919, age 40. And then in quotes, lest we forget. Well, a ceremony was held outside the courthouse, um, at the county courthouse with bipartisan participation. And the event was a way of saying that uh, we regret that part of our history and we pledge to never let it happen again. Well, as part of the ceremony, participants dug up soil where Will Brown's blood was spilled and, uh, 100 years earlier, and that soil, that dirt, was put in jars bearing his name and the, and the name of the city and the date of his death. And those jars have then been sent to Montgomery, Alabama, uh, to be a part of a huge display of jars at the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. They, they are attempting to gather uh, jars of soil from places where more than 4,000 race-based lynchings took place in this country. Sometimes we use common things to convey uncommon meaning. And that's what Jesus did with the sacraments. The sacraments are actions instituted by Jesus, commanded uh, by Jesus, and we use common things. Water, bread, juice or wine. And by them, we experience God's presence and God's grace. Now, what is a sacrament? Well, to answer that, uh, partly we're going to watch... Um, 
a, a video. We're going to actually watch the last half of one of our Absolute Basics videos. And like uh, we did last week, I'm going to narrate it. And just so you know, because we're only doing half of the video, it, it raises something that was earlier in the video. And, uh, and that was how e when we imitate Jesus, each one of us does it uniquely. You, you, when you follow Jesus' example and you base your life after him, it doesn't mean you're going to be a carbon copy of every other Christian. You do it your own unique way, just like an actor who plays James Bond portrays that character in their own unique way. And so it'll make a, a little short little reference to that, and I wanted you to know that that's what it was. So uh, let's watch. Sacrament means a sacred or special action. And there are two actions in the church which point to key moments in Jesus' life. When we participate in these sacraments, we're imitating Jesus and becoming part of his story. At the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus goes down to the Jordan River and is baptized by his cousin John. The Spirit descends and the Father declares his approval. But this baptism wasn't just for Jesus. It was for everyone who wants to follow him. After his resurrection, Jesus commands his followers to go to all nations and baptize those who become disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. At the very end of his ministry, Jesus gathers his core group of followers and celebrates one last supper with them. He breaks bread and shares wine. And he says the bread and wine are his body and blood. Then Jesus tells them, to break bread and drink wine together to remember him whenever they gather. Baptism and communion are sacraments because Jesus did them and he commands us to do them. So what do these sacraments mean? Baptism is a gift. It's our initiation or welcome into the body of Christ, the church. Through baptism, God graciously allows us to join the household of believers. It's a one-time thing we do to enter our life in church. Communion is also a gift. But it's not a one-time thing. It's something we do often in the life of the church. It's a celebration that Christians always and everywhere have done regularly, just as Jesus taught us. And so we become part of Jesus' story, like actors who play, learn to play the role of James Bond. In these sacraments, Jesus' presence is made real to us. In communion, we participate in his death, in his broken body and shed blood, and we look forward to his return. In baptism, we're buried with him under the waters and then raised again. This is what Jesus calls us to do, to imitate him, to follow him, even to the cross. Okay, let's open our Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 13. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one handy there in front of you in the rack. Um, it's on page 967 of the Pew Bibles. And... If you don't have a Bible at home to read, let us help with that. Uh, right after worship, head out to the, across the foyer. You'll see next to the elevator this connection center. There's some Bibles there. Just grab one, take it. It's yours. And if you're wondering, okay, where would I start reading? Well, right now we're looking at the, this biography about Jesus written by Matthew. Just That would be a great place to start. And by the way, you can all, uh, feel free to skip the genealogy at the beginning of it, okay? All right, now in verse 13, we have Jesus' first public act. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee, which is kind of in the north, and he hit, hit, 
east and south to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Now, everyone else who came to John to be baptized, they confessed their sins. But Jesus was different. He didn't have sins to confess, which is probably why John objected at first. Like, are you sure we're supposed to do this? Jesus reassured him. Jesus uh, was baptized anyway because he, his baptism was his way of identifying with sinners. He was putting himself in our place just as he would later do on the cross. Notice that Jesus' baptism uh, reveals the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 16 talks about the Holy Spirit. Uh, it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and alighting on him. Now, I'm going to say that from this, the Holy Spirit didn't look like a bird. I, I'm reading it to say that the, the descent of the Holy Spirit was, was slow and gentle like a, like a bird coming to land. Um, but it's from this passage that the dove is uh, oftentimes a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So you may see it in artwork or in stained glass or whatever, uh, the, the, the dove, and you know, okay, that's symbolic, the Holy Spirit. And then we hear the voice from heaven of the Father, verse 17. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I'm proud of you, Son. Because of this, we believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are uniquely present at baptism, like, like at Jesus' baptism. And that's why Jesus told us when we baptize, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism. Baptism is your welcome into God's family. It marks the beginning of your lifelong journey as a follower of Jesus. And it's God's seal of ownership over you. It's also God's promise that your sins are washed away and you are forgiven. But what if, like me, you are baptized as an infant? And I expect a lot of us here were. I, I was eight months old when I was baptized. Um, I was baptized on the profession of faith of my parents. And, and then I was, and I was received kind of into the life of the fellowship of the, of the church. Now, my baptism, though, also looked forward to the time when I would put my faith in Jesus for myself. Now, if I had later rejected Jesus, then I would have also been rejecting my baptism. Baptism is not an automatic get-out-of-jail-free card. We're not saved by baptism. We're saved by grace. We're saved through faith. Now, some of you I know uh, grew up in churches that did not practice infant baptism, and you were baptized on the profession of your faith. We call that believer's baptism. Uh, it's usually done by immersion, and I've done a lot of those kind of baptisms, immersion believer's baptisms. Um, so who's right? Uh, the churches that practice infant baptism or the churches that only practice believers' baptism? Well, let me tell you. You can make a strong case either way. You can use Scripture and come up to a pretty convincing argument on either side. 
In Acts 2, uh, Peter told the crowd to repent and be baptized. An infant cannot repent and then be baptized. Every record in Scripture of someone receiving Christian baptism is an adult believer. No infant is ever baptized in the Bible. When you're baptized as a believer, it's an important experience. And you're going to remember that experience the rest of your life. Those are some strong arguments, aren't they? Well, here are a few reasons supporting infant baptism. The only Christian baptisms recorded in the Bible are of first-generation Jesus followers. It doesn't say how they handled baptisms for subsequent generations. Uh, the book of Acts does record times when adults were baptized, along with, it says, their households, which could easily have included infants and young children. For Israel, uh, circumcision of males was the uh, initiation sign that they were God's covenant people, and that was normally done when they were infants. Baptism then became the initiation sign for Christians as being God's covenant people and similarly could be done for infants. Now, there are, there are more arguments you could say on both sides, more you could say, but I'm not here to convince you one way or the other. I probably couldn't if I tried. Your, your mind's probably pretty well made up. You're comfortable with where you're at. Uh, and I'm okay with that. Whatever you believe about baptism, I would rather let baptism be something we all agree we, we, that doesn't divide us. And so I'm okay if you want to practice believer's baptism, we'll do that. If you want to practice infant baptism, we'll do that too. It doesn't mean I'm wishy-washy about it. It's just that I think that baptism should be something that unites us rather than divides us. Now, sometimes a person will come to me and they say, Steve, I want to be rebaptized." Uh, maybe they were baptized as an infant or as a, as a, a young believer, but now since then, years later, they've had a really powerful experience with God and they want to they be baptized. Um, and so to that request, I have to say no. Because to rebaptize someone is to say um, that their first baptism was invalid. And I can't do that. But I am very open to reaffirmations of baptism. That is always appropriate. Uh, so, example, you know, when we have our confirmation, students come forward and they declare their faith and their discipleship, and they, they come forward and I ask them to put their finger in the baptism water and touch their head with it as a way of publicly saying yes, reaffirming their baptism. And I speak to them, I say, remember your baptism and be thankful. Now, I've also, you don't see this very often, but I've also done reaffirmations of baptism by immersion. So instead of laying them down in the water, they sort of dip themselves. I might kind of help bring them up. And uh, we say, today we reaffirm your baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a lot like baptism. The words are a little different. The action's a little different. So in baptism, Jesus takes a common thing, water, and he uses it to convey an uncommon meaning. 
He uses it to convey the promises of God. And if you have never been baptized, come talk to me, will you? If you've never been baptized, come talk to me. Now, I know the vast majority of you have been baptized. Uh, a lot of you were sprinkled on. Maybe a few of you got poured on. Some of you were immersed, and uh, you, you, know, you went all the way under. Uh, but either way, you got water on top of your head, right? However you were baptized, there was water up there. So here's what I'm asking you to do. I know this is going to look funny, but nobody's going to take a picture of it. I want you to, to, just for a minute, place your hand on top of your head, okay, where you were baptized, and hold it there for a minute. Remember your baptism when the water marked you out to be a child of God. Remember your baptism when by the water you were claimed as a member of the church family. Remember your baptism when the water spoke God's promise of salvation through faith in Christ. Amen. Now let's go to the other sacrament, Holy Communion. Here again, it is an act that Jesus instituted. He started it. He told us to keep it going. And he used common things, bread and wine, to convey uncommon meaning. Matthew 26, verse 26, that Laura read, says, uh, and you say the words in red with me, will you? Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Jesus didn't say it's no longer bread. It's still bread. But he also said, this is my body. In other words, he's saying, I am present with you. Here I am in this, in a way that, that can be touched and tasted. Verses 27 and 28 say, Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, he didn't say it's no longer the fruit of the vine, which is what he would call it in the next verse, but now it is more. We see in the cup, we see the, the dark, fruity color. The sweetness hits our tongue, rolls around in the mouth, and it brings with it the real presence of Jesus. How does that happen? How does that happen? I don't know. You know, the Greek word for sacrament, sacrament is mysterion. Mysterion. So the sacraments are a great and holy mystery. I grew up in a church that expected communion to be a very quiet, reverent, reflective experience. And then, as a young adult, I started going to walk to Emmaus weekends, and, and communion there, at least some of the time, was a very joyful celebration. You know, I think it's important that we keep both, both sides of that. Repenting of our sins is, is, is vital to preparing to receive communion. And, um, and yet I also remember that I'm probably not going to remember all my sins to confess. 
And some of them I might not even recognize that they were sins. And so I even have to confess the shallowness of my repenting. Well, that's the quiet, reverent, reflective part a lot of times. The historic name for communion is Eucharist. Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. So communion is a time of giving thanks and rejoicing. We give thanks that we are forgiven and we are set free, that we have this open, uh, unfettered relationship with God. But hear this. And I, I, I really want you to get this about communion. Communion is not mostly about what we do. It's not mostly about how sorry we can make ourselves for our sins. Communion is Jesus' gift to us, not our gift to him. We are the receivers in this meal, not the givers. Another question is, well, how often are we supposed to do this? How often are we supposed to receive communion? And I, I think Jesus was really smart to, be, to not be too specific about it. You know, he encouraged us, but he didn't really nail it down. It's got to be every so many days. It was, it was probably the practice of the New Testament church to share communion every time they gathered, which was normally on the Lord's Day, Sunday. But it's not really a rule, hard and fast rule either. Most United Methodist congregations receive communion on the first Sunday of the month, like we do. A few of them have started receiving communion every Sunday, which is a cool thing too. I remember I was not allowed to receive communion until after my confirmation. Was that true for any of you? A few of you? Yeah. But you know, United Methodists have changed since then. Uh, now we invite children. Uh, a, a, a small child of a believing family has the faith that a small child is supposed to have. If your child is old enough to want to be included, well, I'm ready to include them. If your child is, is old enough to, to learn at least the beginning of how to pray, I'm ready to include them. Parents, it's your job to continue to teach them as they keep growing older and have the ability to learn more. It's your job to teach them because they, they learn along the way. Because that's how we all do it, right? We are all just learning along the way. One of the thing, things I feel about communion is that communion reminds me that I live, I live in this world, but I belong to a different world. Uh, I live by a different set of values than the rest of the world. I follow a different Lord. You know, it would have been really smart of me to schedule this Sunday's message for next Sunday when we have communion. Sometimes I'm smart too late. <laughs> so, that means you're going to have next Sunday when you come for and we receive communion, you're going to have to remember today's message. And I think you can do that. Now, what I'd like you to do as we close the message is to feel your pulse. Reach up with your fingers and press that. You can feel that artery in your neck and feel that blood being pumped by your beating heart. 
The last time you received communion, the bread and the juice became part of your bloodstream. It nourished the cells in your body. It became part of you. And when you receive the bread and the cup by faith, you are receiving Jesus. He said, this is my body, this is my blood. It is a great and holy mystery. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, what a, what a great gift you've given to us in these sacraments. That somehow you've chosen to bring to us your very presence. And, uh, Lord, in, in ways we could never measure or completely define. Lord, we thank you that in these sacraments of the church, um, we get to experience something uncommon, something extraordinary through these simple elements. And so, Lord, every time we see a baptism, remind us of our own baptism. Every time we receive communion, remind us that we belong to you, that you claim us as your own. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.